Welcome to a presentation of Telios Meditation and Study Group. What is karma? We had this idea, at least in the West, that it's more of a mystical thing, something that's mysterious, or religious, or spiritual, something of the East. Like you read in Hinduist books and Buddhist books, but as well, it's in the Bible, it's in the Quran, it's in different esoteric books. You can read about it. You can even read them in Samael on Vior's books. You can read the rules, things to do, things not to do. You're in a relationship with this person because of past life actions or what you did now is going to affect you in the future. And there's all these different circumstances they can read about. But the real basis of karma is cause and effect. It is the law of cause and effect. Basically meaning, if you want to produce an effect, you have to produce the causes in order to get the effect. So really what we're talking about here is energy. And this is just basic laws of physics. Isaac Newton proved this with physical science in Newton's third law. It says for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So how is this energy affecting us? Where is it first encountered? Is it in the mind? Is it in the body? In the Dharmapada, or Dhammapada, the first two verses of the book says, our life is shaped by our mind. We become what we think. Suffering follows an evil thought as the wheels of the cart follow the oxen that draw it. Our life is shaped by our mind. We become what we think. Joy follows a pure thought like a shadow that never ends. The Dhammapada is about how to produce good karma. And what the saying here is that it's not physical action, but it is the mind that creates. It is the mind that determines whether we have joy or we have suffering. So we must make a distinction between the energy and the mind. Because the energy is not the mind, but is the mind that manipulates the energy. And again, this brings up another basic law of physics, which comes from the law of conservation of energy. And it says, energy cannot be created or destroyed, but may be changed from one form to another. So we receive that energy within our body, and then our mind determines whether we have joy or we suffer from just what the Dhammapada is talking about. And we know this law basic, basic high school science, where you can get this in college if you ever take a physics class. They talk about these two basic laws, the Newton's third law, and as well, this law of conservation of energy. 
And we apply this everywhere in life. We have wires that connect into our wall and then go right into our cell phone. The cell phone's battery gets charged and uses it. And everyone wants an energy efficient battery. Same thing with cars. Big thing with cars now, you have the, the even cars with batteries. They want energy efficient. They want the most mileage for the gas, the most mileage for the battery. So you don't want a phone that's running a hundred different things all at once, even though they kind of do. But at least the battery can last. It doesn't last five minutes. What would be the use of a cell phone if it lasted only five minutes? So we are very aware of this. We know how to direct energy and make it to be efficient. But if we start to look inside, is that energy be used in the same way? Do we really understand when that energy is being used, what the effect is going to be? We have the cause, but what's the effect? We have this idea that we can think anything we want, watch anything we want, talk about anything, listen to anything on our headset, scroll through a phone or computer, maybe eating something at the same time, and that there is no effect because we do not see a direct physical effect coming from it. But if we were to step back and look at the world, we see a great amount of psychological suffering, more than we have ever had. I can say even more than when I was growing up. I'm not that old. But you see many people on the streets that are homeless, a lot from mental issues. You see people taking pharmaceutical drugs because of anxiety, stress, ones that can't keep the mind still or concentrated. But some use it because of they want pleasure or because of greed in order, the, in order for the intellect to overrun with nootropics. And if you step back, you see all this suffering going on. And this is driven by the ignorance of how energy is really used. So how do we really change this? Or you take the first steps into higher knowledge. We really need reverence. And I really want to talk about reverence. A type, what we need is a type of awe. Awe for our organism, our own human organism, nature, the scene, God. Really what I'm saying, something greater than ourselves. If you were to imagine yourself sitting at this scene right here, you would have a great awe. You'd see that beauty and it would overtake you. And you would have great reverence. You'd revere it. These are some of the first steps that we need to take. We need to be able to see that within ourselves. In Rudolf Steiner's book, How to Know Higher Worlds, this is the first chapter, The Path of Reverence. He says, we will not find the inner strength to evolve to a higher level if we do not inwardly develop this profound feeling that there is something higher than ourselves. Initiates found the strength to lift themselves to the heights of knowledge only because they first guided their hearts into the depths of veneration and devotion. Now, we shouldn't think that reverence is 
going to lead us to slavery into a church where we sell ourselves, be a monk, nun, priest. Rather, that reverence is a type of awe that we have within. It comes from the inner depths of the heart and strengthens the soul, which we know will bring knowledge, greater knowledge than ourselves. And what really that awe is and that reverence that we feel inside that we're drawn to, like in this scene, people go here because they want to become inspired. It changes them. We call that spiritual inquietude because it's something within our minds and our hearts that is screaming out to us that there's only a spark or a small flame that can hear it. So therefore, we need to grow that flame within. This is very opposed to what society tells us, our leaders tell us, that this is the most evolved society we've ever been in. It's the most intellectual, the most brilliant, the most peaceful, the most humane. But here we are listening to a lecture about karma, about how to act, the do's and the don't. If we were so intelligent, we wouldn't need to study anything like this, even myself. But it really shows that we're not maybe intelligent in the way we think, but that we don't have the correct intelligence or the correct wisdom. So therefore, the first steps are really this path of reverence, which really means to the devotion and veneration for truth and knowledge. To start this, to see how we got into this position, I always love to read the, the mythologies because it really shows proof that this knowledge isn't something that was just made up uh, from Gnosis, but is really a knowledge and a way of life that's been standing throughout the ages. And that the process that we are in now, the state of our own psyche, is not something that's unfamiliar something that everyone goes through. So in the story of Cupid and Psyche, we have to realize that this story here was, it's definitely a famous story from what we know. Everyone knows of Cupid, of the individual that is, looks like a young child, he's an angel, and he has a bow and arrow with a heart on it. And if he shoots someone, he makes them fall in love with them. Or, or, or they find their love. That's a little skewed from what this story is, but however, must realize that these stories were meant for ones that were introduced to these type of teachings or, or some secret school or initiate. It was in order for them to teach, the story was to teach them how to walk the path. So we see psyche, obviously we know that word because that's an English word, it refers to the mind. So right there, we could tell that we should be looking at this from an internal perspective. We shouldn't see these characters as the external world. So as I give a brief summary of the story, just imagine how that reflects within. So Psyche is this beautiful woman you can see in the picture. A young woman, very innocent. And she has two other sisters. Psyche is the most beautiful of them all. 
and is revered. So much so that the goddess Venus, which is the goddess of love, sex, and beauty, becomes jealous because a mortal is nearly as beautiful as she is. So she decides to take some vengeance and sends her son, Cupid, down to Psyche in order to make them marry. Cupid and Psyche do marry and they fall in love. However, in this process, Psyche longs for her sisters who aren't nice people because she loves them and she's very alone. But Cupid warns her. He says, that night her husband spoke to Psyche. For thou she could not see him, her hands and ears told her that he was there. This is interesting, this statement here, because she cannot see her own husband, but the senses, her own senses know it, indicating that this isn't an internal thing. Sweetest Psyche, my dear wife, fortune in yet more cruel guise threatens you with mortal danger. I charge you to be most earnestly on the guard against it. Your sisters, believing you to be dead, are now in the grief following you to the mountaintop and will soon even look that way. Or you will bring about heavy grief for me and for yourself, sheer destruction. Even in the last statement, he says, you will bring about heavy grief for me and for yourself, sheer destruction. So who, who is Cupid in relation to Psyche? Because as you see here, he's saying her actions are going to bring grief on him as well. So it's showing some type of union. We, the goddess of Venus is of divinity, and she sends her son. That energy descends down into the psyche which is a form of an arrow, which is a symbol of Cupid, and shakes those senses, those three brains, which is the intellect, the emotion, and the sexual force, shakes them. So when the psyche sits down to meditate, you think of all these different desires. Oh, I have to do this. Oh, I'd like to feel this. I want to think about this. Oh, I thought of this past relationship. And wants to hold on to them. And this is Psyche's sisters. Those psychological aggregates, those desires that we have within that feel very, very close to us like family. And that's why Cupid is warning her. Because he is that energy with the Psyche. They are like one. That's why it's been signified as a marriage. He has many other meanings as well, uh, but we can go about that in an, another time. But he warns her again because Psyche has given in to these sisters. She has seen them and she wants to see them more. He says, the day of reckoning and the last chance are here. Your own sex, your own flesh and blood are the enemy. Arrayed, arrayed in arms against you. They have marched out and drawn up their line and sounded the trumpet call. With drawn sword, your abominable sisters are making for your throat. What disasters press upon us, sweetest psyche? 
So it's interesting. He says, your own sex, your own flesh and blood are the enemy arrayed in arms against you. So he's saying the psyche, the mind, is our own enemy. In a sense that we have these own desires that are leading us in the wrong way. We are taking that energy and transforming it in an incorrect manner. In this story, Psyche does fall. There is a happy ending in the end, but she does fall. She becomes closer to her sisters. She ends up listening to them and distrusting in that force of divine, Cupid. She falls in love with the sensational, sensual pleasure of sex. And that was ultimately her fall. So how did she get there? Why did she fall? When we look at the picture on the left, which is called the Bhava Chakra, the very famous painting and picture from the East. It's always been known as the Wheel of Samsara. But that's not an entirely correct name. Because if you take Bhava Chakra and you split the words there, Bhava and Chakra, Bhava means births or becoming. Chakra means wheel. So really, this is the wheel of becoming or the wheel of births. This is a symbol of the ups and downs. A wheel has to go up, but as well as it goes down, showing evolution and de-evolution. And this is a kind of a roadmap of our state of being, where we are inside our own mind, but as well we are in our state of being. And this shows a pathway of where we evolve throughout all our lives and where we are going, both in past lives, but as well in our current. Then you see this monster called Yama, the Lord of Death. He also can have another name or another definition because Yama means illusions or lies. That the energy that we've been producing or the causes that we produce by manipulating that energy has created effects that creates illusions around us and lies, those desires. And the only way out of it is through death. And we're not talking about physical death here. We're talking about psychological death. And I'm not going to go through this whole chart here of the Baba Chakra. Uh, if you want to know more detail, I highly suggest going to glorian.org and go to the course Baba Chakra, which gives great detail on this whole chart. But really, it's just indicating that if you want to get off the wheel, you need psychological death. And to get at the center of it, we have to look at the axis of the wheel, what makes it turn. So on there, you see three different animals in the center. You see a rooster, snake, and a pig. And they're all attached together. They're all intertwined. The rooster represents craving, greed, desire. The snake is passion, lust, hatred, self-centeredness. And then you have the pig, anger, ignorance, delusion, sleep. These three animals are what turns the wheel. 
This is what happened to Psyche. She fell into those three animals. Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita says there are three gates to this self-destructive hell, lust, greed, anger. That's exactly what Psyche had fallen into. And that story is really a reflection of our own psyche, just not in that story. Because all of us have Cupid, that energy within. But our psyche is the one that transforms it into these degenerative elements, these desires, or these psychological aggregates. Samael Ombiore says, there can be a modification of circumstances and of problems, but they will never cease repeating themselves and they will never have a final solution. Life is a wheel that turns mechanically with all the pleasant and unpleasant experiences, always reoccurring. We cannot stop the wheel. The good or the bad circumstances always process themselves mechanically. We can only change our attitude toward the events of life. So when we think of karma, unfortunately, we are not intelligent enough to really understand what intuitive karma really is. So when we think of karma, we think of mechanical karma. We understand if we produce this effect, this cause, we get this effect on a basic level. But many times we are producing a ton of causes, transforming a ton of, of energy and have no idea what the effect is. And that's why we create karma within. And that's why we end, the psyche ends up in a situation that we are now. So how do we create that karma? To be more specific, karma doesn't specifically mean cause and effect, it does. But there's two types. Karma, the word karma means harmful actions. The energy we put, put in gives harmful results. Dharma means we get good results. We perform good action, we get good results. So there's four ways of acquiring karma, bad, act, uh, bad results. Negative actions, negative words, and negative thoughts are pretty obvious. We don't like someone or we we hate someone, well, more than likely, we're going to get that same back. If we love others, we give them our time, they're more than likely going to do the same. The one that I find is, the one that's not paid attention to as much, is failing to act when we could. This happens in so many different ways. On the basic level, if you want to succeed in, in just regular life and you avoid doing it, well, you know, you're not going to have it because you didn't put any energy into it. Therefore, you didn't get anything back. That's pretty obvious. But if you like this knowledge and you know it benefits you, you're interested in it, you know it's good, yet you fail to act or fail to take action with it, what kind of effect are we going to get from that? A good example is if we go to a job every day, and we don't do any work, and we're getting paid, um, what's going to happen? We're not going to be working there no more. But if we work somewhere, we do a good job, they like our work, and they, they find it essential that we're at the company, they're going to keep you working. Even in time when economic times are bad, they're going to try to keep you. This is the same thing here. If you're applying the knowledge to yourself, 
You're showing that you're working. You're showing that you're trying to reach a higher point. Therefore, the effect is you'll gain more the more you put in. But as well, in future life, you may have a chance to continue the knowledge. Compared to if you do not, you do not know what your next life will be, or even the future from now, in this life. Well, you have the time and the capability to do it, or the availability of the knowledge to receive it. So in the Bhava Chakra, we saw this wheel that goes up and goes down. If we go about mechanical uh, karma or mechanical ways, we just go along with nature. Nature itself just goes in cycles. It goes up, it goes down. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. We go to sleep at night, we wake up in the morning. We basically repeat the same day over and over for the most part. Plants grow in the spring as it, as it is now. They blossom in the late spring and summer. They give their seed. And as the fall and winter come, they die. And it starts over again. This is the natural process of nature and happens throughout everything. Societies, humans, animals, the earth, everything. So from our perspective, from our own psyche, the psyche started out as very clean, but very uneducated. So therefore, to, in order to get that psyche educated with enough wisdom and knowledge to operate a human organism, it goes through a mechanical process of evolution, which is this left side of the sphere of the, of the wheel going up. And it goes from a mineral and learns from a mineral to a plant, to an animal, and eventually gets to a humanoid. And this is the point at which, in the story of Cupid and Psyche, Psyche was at. Psyche, again, is this beautiful woman, very innocent. The reason she is showing someone's beauty is because she is at the natural state of the Psyche. She's like a similar to a small child or a baby in which they don't know the horrors of the world. They don't know the inner workings. They are dependent on their parents and they're just full of life. This is what Psyche is. Psyche is basically a new humanoid being introduced to that world. And then Cupid comes along, who is that energy of the divine, the son of the divine mother in the story, which is Venus. And she sends her son, which is that energy, into our psyche and says, here is my energy. You have free will to do with what you want, but be warned how you transform that energy depends on the effects you have on it. Depends on whether you evolve or de-evolve. And says, I will guide you but you have to listen. Do not listen to your sisters, which are your desires, your egos. So in that story, Psyche does fall. She falls to earth and has to perform all these different tasks that are demanded of her in order to regain her true happiness back. And she's a 
mourning and very sad because she's not in harmony with Cupid. She's not in harmony with that energy. It's divine within her. It's not transforming correctly. So she decides to understand truly what is happening within her. And she takes a third path. On here, the two paths, let me explain the two paths first. There's evolution, there's de-evolution. There's the evolution, but also there's de-evolution. So if we go along mechanical process of nature, which nature just rises and falls, we're just going to go along with that wave as well. The evolution is really just hell. In which the psyche, since it did not try to filter itself out, nature does it for us. And what's interesting about hell, just because I think it has a lot to do with what we're seeing now in the world, is just as someone becomes a uh, career criminal or ends, in, ends up in jail, many of them do not believe they're doing anything wrong. So that saying, everyone in jail is innocent. The same idea is the same. It's the same thing. The Baba Chakra, the thing that turns it is ignorance, sleep, along with the other desires of lust, anger, greed. So even though people are in hell, they do not know they are there. They still suffer. And they're still in pain, but they think it's a normal way of life. If you look at that, look at how often that's happening in this world as well. How many people are in pain and they think it's a normal way of life? This is definitely a mindset we do not want to have. Therefore, that is a rude awakening when we discover that. Psyche and story of Cupid and Psyche to discover that. And the only way out of it was to dip into our own psychological hell. So she, yes, in that story, she does go to hell. But she goes there because that's where her desires and that's where her psychology was. So, if, for example, if we have a lot of lust, we see someone, we, let's say we see the opposite sex, and immediately we think of their bodies, not of them as a person. Therefore, we are in our own psychological hell. And to understand that, we should dip into that psychological element and to understand to why it's there and to look in the mind, where is the first element that I found of lust? And you're like, ah, I see it there. And sometimes things that are very animalistic are very hard to see just because they're so close to life. So therefore, we should look in and ask divinity, ask our own Cupid, our own being, for help and to understand that matter. And with time, it happens. By putting these, by using this law, this superior law that we see below, uh, Samuel Onbior says, when an inferior law is transcended by a superior law, the superior law washes away the inferior law. This is the law of karma. Basically, it means in order to wash away an inferior action, we perform a superior action. And this doesn't happen immediately. It happens over time. Psyche in that story of Cupid and Psyche, 
she ended up getting back to Cupid and rising back up. To read some quotes above, it says, those whose minds are attached to cyclic ex existence will continue to wander there constantly. And Krishna says, there are two paths, Arjuna, which is a student. Which soul may follow at the time of death? One leads to rebirth and the other to liberation. So he says, may follow the time of death. Yeah, and it doesn't exactly mean uh, physical death, it can mean as well psychological death. If we enter into psychological death in order to transform that energy, then we're obviously entering into liberation. Basically, what we're doing is we're taking that wheel and we're reversing it. In order to evolve to a, off the wheel to a higher being than ourselves. In the story of Bhavra, the Gita, Krishna, which is similar to Christ, or even Cupid in a sense, speaks to his student. Here would be similar to Psyche. And he declares in the first and second quote here, just the path of reverence, the first steps. I declare there are two paths for the heart. Jnana yoga, the contemplative path of spiritual wisdom. And karma yoga, the active path of selfless service. Then he says, the senses are higher than the body, the mind higher than the senses. Above the mind is intellect, and above the intellect is atman. That means our being. We could say Cupid. Thus, knowing that which is supreme, let Atman rule the ego. Use your mighty arms to slay the fierce enemy that is selfish desire. So saying here that we have to have reverence for something greater than ourselves. But as well, he says, use basically wisdom to beat our enemies, which are our desires, our egos. Performing all actions for my sake. Completely absorbed in self, without exceptions. Fight, but stay free from the fever of the ego. This next quote, I think, sums it up as for how to dissolve karma. So I'll say it here. What is action and inaction? The wise see that there is action in the midst of inaction, and inaction in the midst of action. Their consciousness is unified and every act is done with complete awareness. The awakened sages call a person wise when all his undertakings are free from anxiety about results. All his selfish desires have been consumed in the fire of knowledge. The wise, ever satisfied, have abandoned all external supports. Their security is unaffected by the results of their action. Even while acting, they really do nothing at all. Free from expectations and from all sense of possession, the mind and body firmly controlled by the self and do not occur sin by performing a physical action, really showing that this is an internal thing and where he's manipulating energy. They live in freedom who have gone beyond the duties, dualities of life, competing with no one. They are alike in success and failure and content with whatever comes to them. They are free without selfish attachments, and their minds are fixed in knowledge. They perform all work and spirit of service, and the karma is dissolved. 
So he's explaining here are three factors. The first, he's saying that we need basically psychological death, in which here you see Arjuna in the background taking a bow and arrow and slaughtering his egos, meaning the energy that is trapped or that karma that is trapped by analyzing himself, by using discretion about how he is using that energy, he's able to release the energy that's trapped in those desires. And through that, something new is born inside. More knowledge, greater knowledge. But this is also done through the sacrifice for humanity. And this doesn't mean we have to go out and uh, start handing out food or, or teaching doesn't mean that it just means that if we even meditate and begin to calm the mind down others will feel that and you are setting an example for others to follow if you listen to someone and just purely listen without anything else then that's an act of sacrifice within you and is a gift to them so this is the real meaning of that. You're working on your own psychological gymnasium in order to bring about something new. As the last statement proves that, it says, as the heat of a fire reduces wood to ashes, the fire of knowledge burns to ashes all karma. Nothing in this world purifies like spiritual wisdom. So how do we get results? Well, there's a few basic rules or things, or points we should remember. The certainty of cause and effect, which I think has been pretty thoroughly explained in here, that in order to get an effect, we need to put causes in place. The effects are greater than the cause. This is where we just need patience. If we meditate, and you go, oh, my mind is crazy. And I know people like this. And their mind is very crazy. But uh, many times we make it crazy because we try doing two things at once. Or we just look at a cell phone all day or the computer all day. And that's just training the mind to be crazy. And then we try to sit down and meditate. And we just come up with the result. We can't do it. We shouldn't feel that way. Just beginning, we may not see the effects. Uh, they might be very, very small, but with time, those effects will become greater. Uh, I, I can just say that from personal experience, but that takes time. It's not immediate. You cannot receive the consequences without committing its corresponding action. I know it sounds pretty obvious, but that's very basic. If you're not putting the causes in, you're not going to get the effect. If you want something to happen, you want a certain result, you have to put a certain type of energy into it. And you have to be specific about what you want in order to get that. Once an action is performed, the consequence cannot be erased. Even though we've defeated a psychological aggregate, let's say it's lust, there's still going to be people in our lives that are going to come up, or even anger. There's still going to be people that come up in our lives that are not going to like us. But in that case, 
if anger or lust came to us and we didn't have any inside, we just wouldn't react. Then energy would never transform in a negative way. It's just as if you were driving a car and you sped up and you just notice a left turn. Well, the only thing you can do is try to transform that energy, that momentum, by hitting the brakes and making a left turn. If the momentum is too strong, the car is going to flip over. So we can't remove that energy that's already been put into motion. We can only transform how it affects us. And again, this law here is so important. It says, when an inferior law is transcended by a superior law, the superior law washes away the inferior law. The final up, I really like these two quotes, just because for me, I feel this hits the home. Uh, first time I read these, I, I really liked them. So let me read the first one. In brief, the only time to accomplish the aims of beings is now. When you have attained a special life of leisure and opportunity, the majority of us in the miserable realms, a few come to the happy realms, but the majority of these are situated, are situations that lack leisure. Therefore, you do not get a chance to practice the teachings in these situations. Even when you have gained the circumstances allowing for practice, the reason that you do not practice the teachings properly is through, I will not die yet. Now, I think this is really important just because if we are in a life where we have food, shelter, the base and the basic necessities of life, we have it pretty special, especially if we don't have to work day and night to provide that. We have time and leisure. If you're listening to this or you have time to meditate, you are one of those people who has leisure and opportunity. And it sounds like, and you should be very thankful because you do have a lot of good karma at the present moment. But the divine has given you that opportunity. Why? Because they're giving you a chance to advance your soul to something higher than you are but you do not know how that's going to change in the future because you must think of the wheel. The wheel goes up and it goes down. If you've reached the humanoid, you're at the top of the wheel. If you have food, shelter, and clothing, you are higher on the wheel. If you have a comfortable living and you have leisure and you have opportunity to think of these things and to actually practice them, you don't, you have the intellect to do it, the knowledge to do it, the body to do it. Um, you're not burdened by responsibilities. Then you are one of the fortunate ones. So if you are at the top of the wheel or the top of the mountain, there's only two places to go. One is learn to fly or go down the mountain. So if we're involved in these teachings, we're looking to fly. And the last one, I'll, sum, I'll just cut it off here. It says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart and, thy, and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like, is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Right. Any questions? Instructor, I have a question. Could you signify what is meant by Aphrodite's jealousy? Yes. Well, Aphrodite's is Venus. Aphrodite's is just the um, Greek term for Venus. And Venus is the Roman term. They're both the aspects of the Divine Mother. They are the goddess of love, sex, beauty. Aphrodite's or Venus represents that sexual force within. If you're familiar with sexual alchemy or sexual ma magic, this makes a lot of sense. That arrow is of Aphrodite's. And so when that arrow penetrates into the psyche, it charges. It is in a downward motion into us. I don't have the tree of life here or else it would make a little more sense. But for instance, that energy is descending down into us. And disturbs the mind, disturbs the heart, disturbs the sexual glands. Because it's getting energy into it. And inherently, we have desire. So there is these dualities within us. That jealousy is because of our desire. She says she's punishing psyche. Yeah, it seems like it's punishing because in us, we receive the energy and then we incur suffering because we don't know how to use it correctly. So it's like we're being punished. But the reality is Cupid is talking to psyche and warning her, saying, hey, you know, you don't, you're not educated enough. You have to listen to me. That's, that's, that's what Cupid is referring to. So really, in this story, Venus is trying to rise the psyche up to a higher state of being. To escape this wheel of samsara, or the wheel of becoming, the bhava chakra. And to get out of this loop of evolution and de-evolution. Because that energy can devolve us or evolve us, all depending on how we use it. So that's what their story is referring to. That makes sense? Um, there's a lot of good feedback. This makes so much sense. We need to want to die, if that makes sense. And I really enjoy the concept of us having leisure time, for we will all grow and then in return we can help to serve others. Yeah, there's a question that says, is yeah. there a mantra to calm the psyche? I know meditation, I know meditation is, but is there a mantra that would help? Yeah, there, um, I don't know if you practice Melchizedek today, but, but when that practice comes up every Saturday the 13th, I highly suggest doing it. Um, if you read the, the newest or listened to the newest uh, lecture that was given on it or the, how to practice it, there was a mantra that was given there, Om Tat Sat. That is extremely powerful. It takes time to be able to use it just in daily life. But I would start meditating on it as you sit down. Get used to just say, using it when you're sitting. Eventually, that will start to come into your waking life. It's a very powerful mantra. 
Many of the mantras that Samuel Envior gives are really to calm the psyche. You just have to try one. But the Om has always been known as the one that clarifies the mind. Uh, all right, Matt, you want to raise your hand? Let me, let me uh, unmute you. Hey, yeah, I was the about the Aphrodite's jealousy. And, okay. And the way you're saying makes sense, but I just want to clarify. So is it the same statement that's made um, in the Bible when, in, in I don't know if it's the Ten Commandments, when, when he says, for I am a jealous God. But the jealousy that I think the confusion came from, you know, seeing that term jealousy through the ego. But, so it's like Aphrodite wants Psyche to belong to her. So the jealousy that's being presented isn't what we understand as jealousy. It's more of like, I am a jealous God. In other words, your mind and the psyche is trapped. So it's like trying to remove that psyche from that which traps it. And that's what the jealousy is really referring to. I think that's, that's where I heard you say. Yeah. If you, if you um, I think, I'm not sure if it's in this quote or not uh, for Cupid and psyche, uh, but he basically says, don't, don't look at your sisters. Um, and it, what he's saying basically is the being and divinity doesn't mix with the ego. You can only serve one God. Um, meaning you can't serve greed and also want to be divine. That doesn't, I mean, people try to do that and that's where, you know, you get mixed up into different black magic and things, you know, you know, I want to be loving to everyone yet. You know, I want your money. Um, you know, I, you know, I want this, but you know, oh, don't do that. You know, it's you can't have free will. So yeah, so God is saying, yeah. I mean, if you want freedom, you're going to have to follow what I what I say. It's kind of like a kid, like a kid just we eat junk all day if he didn't listen to his parents. His parents are the same way. They can't start listening to their own desires they really have to grow up listening to their parents so they can succeed in the world and and go on their own and that's really the goal of the whole thing is for us to go out on our own eventually we become intelligent enough that we can produce our own light within and therefore there we understand what's right and wrong for the most part that's what that's referring to and how can we learn if we don't learn how to listen? Yeah. Yeah. If we don't learn to listen. Exactly. And, and in the Bible, Bible was not explicit as a lot of uh, Hindu and Buddhist texts. Uh, as you could see with the, the Greek mythology, they were all hidden a little bit with their meaning. But you always have to just take the point of view that these aren't characters, physically speaking. These are energies within ourselves. And if you just like when I read this story, I could tell, I could see the symbols, but then I was like, probably, oh, I started to imagine what was happening. And then it comes up and start, you start to see, oh, this is how the story unfolds. Because mm-hmm. these characters are not like Aphrodite is beyond good and evil. So it's easy to look at, like I, I had always, I had had confusion about seeing Aphrodite looks like the quote unquote bad guy in the story. Yeah. But it's really not that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because we're inherently negative as of now, mm-hmm. and we're trying mm-hmm. to change that. Okay. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming.